0: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books and African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil, and on today's podcast, we have the awesome opportunity to talk to a good friend of mine, Dr. Nicholas Gaet author of this amazing new book, The Hated Cage, An American Tragedy in Britain's Most Terrifying Prison. And so my brother Guyette is coming to us from uh, the University of Cambridge, where he is a professor of American history and the author of five previous books, including one that we had him on previously to discuss, Bonds Us Apart, How Enlightened Americans Invented Racial Segregation. And so welcome to the podcast, my friend. How are you doing? Adam, it's so
2: nice to see you, I'm doing well. How are you doing?
1: As we spoke before, I'm doing a lot better Better now. <laughs> been it's nice have been, made. been uh, two men,
2: but it's very nice to see you.
1: Yes, yes, man. Uh, and looking forward to the next time we can um, see each other in person, too. So l- looking forward to um, doing that, too. So, um, and so, man, to begin, to discuss this amazing book, The Hated Cage. Um, Can you actually read an excerpt from the book that um, really encapsulates what you're trying to do uh, in in the book?
2: Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, um, This is a great feature on the podcast. I'm very happy to get the chance to try this out. Just to give people a tiny bit of context, uh, my book is about a bunch of Americans that wind up in a British prison during the War of 1812, and it's particularly about. Uh, a group of African-Americans who wind up in this prison and actually end up being in our own little segregated prison block. So this little passage I'm going to read is about the leader of that African-American group, a guy called Richard Crayfus, who was known as King Dick to all those people who wrote about this at the time. So I'll just read you a paragraph or two about him. He is Beth Bar, the religious, and I suspect the strongest man in the prison insisted the first published account of King Dick's reign over prison for, that's the black prison block, which appeared in 1816, was black Hercules commands, respect, and his subjects tremble in his presence. On rare occasions that American writers have chosen to remember Dormer prison, Dick emerged as a powerful, but elusive figure. He'd been born in Salem, Massachusetts, or perhaps in Virginia, or maybe Maryland. He had served aboard an American privateer, or perhaps a French ship, or maybe he'd been press-ganged into the Royal Navy. He was six feet two inches in height, or maybe six-five, or perhaps seven feet. He prowled the corridors of the black prison block with two young boys, white boys, and a huge club, which he swung liberally and without warning to maintain absolute order within his prison. If any of his men are dirty, drunken, or grossly negligent went that 1816 account of King Dick, he threatens them with a beating, and if they're saucy, they're sure to receive one. Fascinated by King Dick, white writers all reach the same conclusion about his role at Dartmoor. He may have been a despot, but only a despot could bring order to a black community. And this image of Dick as a necessary tyrant seems so palpably racist, It's amazing it's lingered among the relatively small number of writers and historians who've noted the American experience at Dartmoor, but one reason for its persistence is our sources for what happened in the prison are hugely skewed. A dozen or so prisoners left a substantial account and not one of them was a person of color. So that's a flavor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so take us through the journey. How did you find. You know, information about King Dick. When, when was that first time that you encountered him?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, so I, this is not very high-minded, Adam, but um, I actually came to write a book mostly because I, I kind of accidentally drove into the prison, like not literally drove into it. I was on vacation with my family in southwestern England. And one day I took the family out, you know, like if you've ever been on a family vacation, nobody really wants to leave, at like, a hotel or the Holiday House or wherever else, but I drove them all out. And we found our way to this incredible prison in a middle of nowhere. In this high moorland, about fifty miles north of Plymouth. And I actually had no idea when I arrived there, but during the war of 1812, six and a half thousand Americans had been imprisoned there. So I thought, this is crazy. I'm a Brit. Well, I've on time in the U.S. I've taught U.S. history in the U.S. and also in Britain. I should find out something about this. But I was amazed to discover that no one had ever written a book about the subject before. And then I was amazed to go off and find in Jeff Bolster's book, Black Jacks, uh, you know, kind of classic, I think, 1997 story about Americans in the age of sale in the 18th century. They wrote half a chapter on the experience of these black prisoners at Domo. And the crazy thing is that they were separated from the white American prisoners, not by the British, but by a request from some of those white American prisoners. So I, I, I guess it, the light bulb went off for me. Dartmoor was the first racially segregated prison in American history. It just happened to be in the Southwest of England. So it was this kind of like weird, accidental discovery of the building, which is still a prison today, funnily enough, but then also going off and of reading about it I'm realizing that this might be quite an important story in a history of race relations and especially in the kind of deep history of American segregation, which you know I've written about before, so.
1: And, and with that, um, Thinking about like you had brought up um bolster's book um Black Jacks, and I still remember first encountering that book and being like, shit like i this is remarkable um, especially as someone who is not exactly an adept swimmer um, <laughs> uh so so there was the the quality of that but um reading your book was fascinating because it reminded me that when i've we had spoken about some of my journey to where I am today in 2023, but very early on, I thought I was gonna be a maritime historian, right? Um, And and I guess considering where I write about, I technically can still be that, like it's not that far. But um, your book reminded me of a set of documents that, um, uh, letters that Bolster actually published uh, from some archival information that he gathered at the National Archives here in the States Um, in the William & Mary Quarterly, I think in in the mid aughts.
2: Well, that's right, impressed Seaman records, right? So, letters from Seaman had been impressed into the Royal Navy, and they were writing to their families or back to America, and he was able to find, well, was it like half a dozen, maybe a dozen letters by African Americans? So, these were unusual sources in that sense, right?
1: Yeah, and and so it just reminded me of just like, and, and this pivots into the question, what kind of sources did you use um, because you spoke about King Dick and we just t- spoke about the, um, impressed, um, uh, semen files. Can you take us through the archival journey that you took in this particular book?
2: Yeah. I mean, um, I, I was thinking that since Blackjacks came out in like 97, there've obviously been quite a lot of, uh, books that have really updated our understanding of the black Atlantic and have kind of made clear how these kind of maritime spaces were spaces of huge possibility. So I'm thinking you're obviously about people like Julius square, and maybe also people like Jane Landers. I mean, there's a lot of stuff written now about the Atlantic as a space of possibility. And if you contrast what was possible at sea with what was possible at land, I mean, the sea was not a kind of, um, it wasn't like a, a, an asylum for racism, right? So, I mean, if you're an African American sailor or a sailor from the black diaspora, who wasn't actually born in what became the United States, you may have been born in the Caribbean or even in Africa, but if you were a black man on one of these ships in the Atlantic, what you could expect was a kind of recognition of and deference to your skill. So to the extent that you could uh, you work know, the ropes, you could you work know, the sails, you could, you could do the job of a sailor, you could expect that to be the determining thing, especially when it came to things like pay. So there are ways in which that maritime space looks quite different from places where African Americans or folks from the black diaspora hit the land. When you hit the land, there are a whole bunch of other concerns and pressures and constraints that come on you. But a flip side to this is that there's quite a lot of literature written by sailors in the 18th and especially the 19th century. Very little of this is written by black sailors. So when Jeff Buster went off and found those letters, he was able to uncover like about a dozen. But he he didn't know. like If you go into the National Archives and you look at this massive collection of correspondence from solos who've been forced into the Royal Navy, and then the State Department's trying to get them out, unless they identify themselves as black, you just don't know who's black and who isn't. So the crazy thing about my story is, you know, we Brits, we like a bit of bureaucracy. You're familiar with Adam, right? Like, we love our bureaucracy, we love our clips. you know, we love our databases. So basically, a double prison, when you went into the prison, they had this register, and they would write down not just your name, but they'll write down the ship that you came from, the ship that captured the ship that you were on, the date you were captured. But the really cool stuff is they'd write down stuff like height, they'd write down your build. I think I'd probably count a stout. That was the word they used quite largely. But they also wrote down your complexion. So this was the truly crazy thing for me. I had this incredible source with all six and a half thousand American prisoners, which contained this little box for every single remnant with a racial identifier. So what I did, and I know again, this is gonna sound a bit nuts, but it was like COVID time. You know, people I could have read like a novel, which would have been bad, but instead I transcribed the database. And I think that is a bit more service to, to humanity, right? Because what I have now is six and a half thousand entries which allowed me to identify the 950 or so people of color that wound up in the prison. And then I could go back to the National Archives in DC and actually search by name. So I was able to find more documents even than Jeff Benster had found by black sailors who hadn't self-identified as black when they were actually writing these letters home, but who clearly were black because that's the way the database had written about them over in the prison. So, so that was like a central source for me. And it also let me corroborate or at least kind of test the bands of some of the published sources about Dartmoor, which, as I said, in the excerpt I read, are entirely written by white people. So we have this view of King Dick and a view of what happened in the black prison block, which is almost entirely white generated. But this register, gives a whole lot of really interesting information, things like escapes, whether somebody got out at a particular time. Again, stuff like the ship they came in on, so we can check what people said versus what was really true. All of this material enabled me to get a different perspective on those 950 people of color that didn't leave behind their own account of what happened. So as it was, um, I mean, again, I was influenced by people you've interviewed. So, I mean, people like Risa Fuentes, uh, Jessica Johnson, Sadia Hartman, obviously. But those folks who've been trying to understand black experience through sources which are either absent or overwhelmingly stretched with the bias of the white gaze. So that was kind of a huge challenge for me and incredibly interesting and invigorating. And uh, yeah, it was a big player writing the book. Quick pivot. You mentioned white gaze. It reminded me, when you were at Princeton, was Toni Morrison still there? Yeah, she was. I mean, she wasn't. she's in English, not history. So she's basically someone who left out of the window and we saw her and we were like, that's Tony totally Renison. Yeah, absolutely. OK, OK. Because when you said that, I was like, hold on. You went to Princeton."
1: I think she would have still been there, so. Yeah, but she was not going to hang with me. Like She's an important person, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, you might have picked in all the yeah. Who two. Man. No. I know what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. So, to, so uh, getting back on track here for a second, um, you mentioned the fact that folks chose not to identify their race or or it was chosen for them at whatever scale. To the best of your ability, why did they choose not to? For those who maybe you can consider choosing not to, um, why did they choose not to identify their
0: race?
2: Yeah, so so but if you think about like how imagine for a second that you wash up in one of these uh, carceral spaces in the British Empire. And I mean, I should have said the reason that these guys end up in, in prison is simply because they've been serving mostly on privateers during the War of 1812. So just to back up for a second, I mean a kind of tragedy of the story is that these six and a half thousand Americans I mean, virtually all of them are just ordinary sailors. There are very few soldiers, very few people who get captured in the land battles of the War of 1812 and up being taken back to Britain to go to prison. So these are basically sailors who are serving on our regular merchant ships or privateers. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between those two, but basically regular folks end up being captured by the Royal Navy usually and then dumped in one of these prisons. Now, when they get to the prison, they find almost certainly a right clerk, when was booking them in. Now, you have some power over that right clerk, but in other ways, that white right clerk completely defines who you are. So the power you have over him is, if you want to say your name is not Adam McNeil, but your name is Nick Guy, you can do that. Right? How is he going to prove who you are? You almost certainly don't have an identification document. There isn't like a passport, obviously. You might have a Siemens Protection Certificate, which is this US government thing, but I'll come back to that. If you do have it, he's not pulling it out of your pocket. So I'd show it to him. You also can say to him how old you are. So you can make that up if you want. You probably don't want to be as old as I am, Adam, but you could claim to be older than you are. And also, crucially, you could tell him where you come from. And he has no way of knowing. So let's say for a second that you're a runaway from our plantation in Jamaica. You're almost certainly going to tell him you're from Boston. You might tell him you're from Africa. You're not going to tell him you're from Jamaica. So those are the things you've got some control over. But... In this complexion column, you have no control at all. He's not saying to you, what's your race? I mean, it's the funny question, right? I mean, you know, look at the census. Whenever you ask people what race they are, that tells you something really interesting about the constructed and the kind of historically contingent nature of race-making. I mean, yeah, the census in 1800, the census in 2000. Oh, the census in 1917, the census in 2000. They change in all kinds of interesting ways. But this is not that. This is sun-pasty... Brit sitting behind a big desk with this giant register open, clocking the race that he thinks you are. And what I found so fascinating about this story is that particularly for lighter skinned black folks, not every clerk clocks them the same way. So to a story, sure many of these American prisoners were to different prisons. So we started off in one, they got transferred to another, they got transferred to another. I went and looked at one of the prison registers. And so you can see that at different prisons, they could have been booked in as different races. In some cases, they'd be a white man. In another place, they'd be a brown man. In another place, they'd be brown complexion, but that actually meant white. They might be put down as brown complexion and similar written, but were able to clarify a Negro. So it's fascinating. You can see the kind of race-making, if you like, going on in front of the prisoner, but the prisoner didn't control that. So they couldn't withhold their race from the clerk. The clerk would decide everything. But any problems that we have, right, rightly, when understanding like, the varieties of race, out work, the pasty Brit is doing. And the fact that they didn't always agree from prison to prison, again, tells me something so interesting about how kind of contingent and made up this categorization really was. And it just reminds me, to your point about the census, um,
1: about how, when you look at something like the census, and, and or how people designate someone as mulatto um, during during the slavery eras, um, and thinking about how that, what identifiers in seventeen eighty three tells you that this person is mulatto, if for no other reason, both of their parents could just be very light-skinned. Absolutely. I know and, that. Yep. Yeah. And and so so it also reminds me um, of a connection um, that I didn't actually think about until we just spoke here about your um, process. And really, it's connection to the something like the Book of Negroes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you think about the Book of Negroes, for those who don't know, it's this surveillance ledger of... Give or take about three thousand um, black refugees, but also enslaved people. Yeah, because many of the people that are on these boats that are sailing out are claimed, quote unquote, by white families, not as indigenous servants, but as you know, enslaved people. And so, this also reminds me of uh, you know it, it, what you're speaking about in terms of the register at Dartmoor Prison. Very much reminds me of because at the end of the day. It's a surveillance document. You have to account for the people, right? Because you get the same thing. Sometimes these are the best... And it's interesting because it's a connection to my dissertation. I'm literally pretty much taking a Cassandra Pybus approach uh, with her epic journeys of freedom or liberty, where, like, the people that she starts with in chapter one, she's not choosing people that effectively, for the most part, will not be found in the later chapters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So choose, So I'm literally... In a way, taking a similar approach where the people that are in the Book of Negroes in my Chapter 5, they're going to be the people that I start out with in Chapter 1. Oh, cool. Method. hmm mm-hmm. Which I actually didn't realize until just <laughs> now. So, Nicholas Gaia, you are going to be in my acknowledgments anyway, but especially in this trapping <laughs> achievement, Tuesday, April 11th at one uh, twelve Eastern Standard
2: Time in... Wow. I can see the magic happening in front of us. I mean, oh, I was telling mean, genuinely, that, I a mean, lot like, like genuinely, a little, the, the French are very big on this. The French have got like a whole history of what they call the identification state, right? And in some respects, if you're listening to this, your eyes might roll over at that, but the identification state, but the efforts made by the state bureaucracy in France, you can see in Britain, you can see in the United States, to kind of fix the identity of a person. And, and it's so like normative and accepted in our time, right? We're all kind of brewing into it bureaucracies that can see us completely or think they can. So, you know, I mean, I'll give you an obvious and kind of politically contentious example, voter ID. Like, I mean, that's something in our own time, which I think is rightly a massive contentious issue, moving from a system in which you could go and vote without ID to a system where you need voter ID to vote, very much following in a pattern of all of us being fixed and seen by the state. If you go back to the 18th century, that's not really happening anywhere. I mean, you might see it happening in some places as censuses are beginning. But censuses get going, I mean, they're happening in China for a long time, but they get going in a big way in the 18th century, originally in the French colonies. So it's fascinating that the censuses happen in the colonies before they happen back at home. Then you begin to get them, obviously, in the US. You get them in Britain around the turn of the 19th century. What's fascinating about this register at Dartmoor? And the Book of Negroes is a bit like this too, but the Book of Dartmoor, there's there's even more in the register there, just how many fields get filled in. So if you compare the Dartmoor prison register to, say, uh, the census of um, 1801 or 1811 in Britain, there's way more information about each individual at Dartmoor in this register than you get almost anywhere else, but also way more in any census in the United States. So in a what we can do is understand something about those individuals, solely through the fact that the state is trying to see them. So I know that you, but as a historian, I have a pretty ironic dynamic about that, right? Because it's like, in some ways, they didn't gain from being seen by the state, Like right? When the state could see them like that, it's because they were in state custody. But from a historian's point of view, this is an incredible document because the state has enabled us to see them too, right? Or see some things about them. So a lot of what I've got here in terms of thinking about this is putting this register in Oranga history looking back to the Book of Negroes and actually looking ahead to the cataloguing of enslaved people in the British Caribbean, which comes out of this moment. So after 1815 you're seeing that a lot more as part of the effort supposedly to quote-unquote ameliorate slavery in places like Barbados and Jamaica. You've got these plantation registers kept for the first time all of this is about how the state tries to see people, and see people of colour in particular. So, well, I'm totally down with the Marcus Redeker, kind of Julius Square. You want to be at sea, you want to escape from the state. But in a strange kind of way, as a historian, the state has given me the vantage point I need to check my stories against those produced mostly by white sailors, which are often really unreliable. So the register is more really reliable in a strange kind of way when a lot of those stories by white people about the time they had moving alongside black people at Dartmoor. So this whole thing is replete with ironies, but for a historian who's interested in sources, I think this story is just fascinating.
1: In in And in, it's fascinating in, in a multitude of ways for me, just thinking about to your point about uh, race-making and you know the Atlantic dimensions of the story um and even larger than the Atlantic, the Indian Ocean implicates because you also bring up, you know, the if you're considered quote unquote brown mm-hmm. in reality, you can also be from the subcontinent. Right?
2: There are a bunch of South Asians in Dartmoor, yeah, who end up so called black person. We're also East Asians, this Chinese dude who winds up there, we're also counted as black.
1: And and so it's just it's just a fascinating um, story and and also like a hodgepodge of different folks. Um, and it also just makes me think as well, as the writer of this story, because it's so large and you're having to go, you know, to, you know, you're creating your database and you're having to go check in the, you know, in archives in, in the States and in DC. What was the actual biggest challenge that you encountered? with this book
2: i mean it was de- it was definitely uh trying to mean, once I saw this register i mean I, if you if you see, if you go into because it's stored in london it's a key of the national archives they actually see it the funny thing is like a rare of these big government documents it's like almost the size of a person like you can nearly climb inside the book it's that large and so there are six volumes of this thing that cover this period and i don't know like i've not really done this kind of history before but when you confront that moment where they were like, okay, well, no one who's written about this before has ever tried to transcribe the database. I'm like, I've got a family. They don't like me that much, but I've got a family. I'm supposed to hang out with them sometimes. Should I agree to do this? Should I tell myself that I can create this database? That was like the toughest part for me because I knew how much work it would be. But I also knew this, and I talk about this in the book, you know, like when you put stuff in a database. The main thing about database, i oh, this is going to get like, the lowest listenership of anything you've ever done. Me and Adam are talking about databases, everybody. What could be cooler than that? Okay. So listen, this is like the Excel moment. If you put up stuff in Excel, the only point of doing it is you can search it. Like there's no point in just having a bunch of stuff there. The whole point is you can order and search it. What I found so interesting about this DOM or register is they could never search it, right? Now, there was no, it was it, it was, it was, it was ordered in terms of the order people came in. So there's prisoner number one, there's prisoner number 6,555. And in between one to 6,555, it's just the order in which they come in front of that desk with the pasty British officer who's writing them into the book. If you want to find out if, say, Adam McMear was one of the prisoners, how are you going to do it? You can go through six and a half thousand names. But this is the funny thing about what I did, right? So by creating this database, I finally achieved the goals of the British state 200 years later. I finally got the searchable Database. And the funny thing about having that is you can prove that a ton of things that people said afterwards about Darmot were not true. So people who claimed that they had been press ganged and sort of forced to serve on a Royal Navy vessel, bullshit. I can tell you which ship they came in on it wasn't a royal navy ship people who claimed to have escaped bullshit i can tell you from the register that they didn't even try because the escapes have noted really really clearly and that seems to me at least against other sources to be pretty accurate folks who said that they came in on a particular date who were left on a particular date it's all there so the the register is not infallible and we've already talked about the race making side of stuff the idea of having this incredible resource against which you can kind of judge and measure much more fragmentary evidence and also from which you can try to produce stories about people of color who didn't really need any evidence at all. The value of that was really enormous. So it was kind of daunting in advance to think about actually going through the six and a half thousand entries. But there was never a moment where I didn't think this was worth doing because I knew at the end of it, like I said, I'd of have this ability to do something the Brits could never do. They wanted to do it but they could never do it, which is just search all this crazy information they piled up.
1: And so with that too, I'm interested to know after compiling this database and, you know, first of all, before I get to the next question, um, what is your what are your future plans for this particular
2: database as I'm, well? I'm kind of waiting for someone to ask me to do something with it. I mean, literally it's just sort of sitting on my computer right now. And I mean, if anyone's listening that has got stuff they want to do with this, if anyone's listening and has connections to it, somebody who keeps these kind of databases. I mean, I think actually this 950 stream list of uh, black people, and I'm putting that in quotation marks because there might be a Chinese, there might be some South Asians in there too, About a 950 name list of black people, which again, I can kind of isolate because you just search by that field and bang, there, you've got them in a list. It's for me anyway, one of the most complete databases, snapshots of a black community that we we'll have anywhere for this period. I mean, generally, it's a real more comprehensive than, say, a census entry of a black neighborhood in Philadelphia in 1810 or 1820. It tells you a little more about these individuals. Now, it's a skewed community in the sense that there are virtually no women in a prison. Uh, and now, gender is a really important part of my story in terms of how the community kind of develops at Dartmoor. But, yeah, I mean, the, the records, I think, are really fascinating. So if anyone has got some good ideas about what we could do with them, then I'm very happy to make them available. I mean, if the work is done and if others can
0: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. Yeah, because personally I think
1: one of the benefits um I, I think I find is also like being able to teach um with the database and to also think about um I have a class that I'm um developing now called um slavery race um or slavery race and migration in early African-American history and pretty much going through the major wars of, you know, the late, early, the late, you can't really be late, early modern, but eventually like the 18th century, um, into the early 19th. Um, because I don't want to, I don't want it to just simply stop at the civil war because I also think that there are many other, um, important proxy wars to discuss, but I think about the application of your book and also the, um, the database, because I think that would be a great way to, one of the parts I loved about finding, uh, the, the list of the, of bolster that bolster had in the more, uh, William and Mary quarterly was literally being able to see the letters and see them, you know, see their writing to see their, you know, their thoughts on belonging and, and such. But it's also to think about, okay, we're literally talk, talking about their families. the fact that they haven't seen like Jacob Israel Potter hadn't seen his family in over a decade, and is still petitioning. so um so I think that, you know the the teaching element for your database, uh, you know, once again, I hope you know, I, we need to get
2: media on the line, matter of fact. I thought that it was a mobile sensor or something similar. I'm thinking somewhere right, my is going to take this
1: yeah yeah i think it's very important um but yeah so so it just also makes me think too um can you take us now that you've taken us on a journey to understand you know your archival journey and and some of the experiences um of someone like king dick and others um can you also take us a little deeper into the day-to-day what was the daily experience like for Black prisoners here at Dartmoor. What what was their
2: experience like there? On a, day? I mean, yeah, being a prisoner really sucks. Clearly, but I mean, it's very really different in a way from being. So, so when I started the project, I thought, okay, Dartmoor today is still a prison here in the UK. So actually, last summer I got the chance to visit and go inside. It's sort of medium security, but most of the folks who are there have done. They've been gone down for rape or for murder, so fairly serious offenders. And so even now, those prison buildings, those American sailors, were stuck in back in the war of 1812. Many of those have been repurposed, and there are prisoners living in them right now. Well, the big difference is, that in the 1850s, they repurposed the prison and they put cells in. Back in 1812, the prison was originally opened in 1809 for French prisoners during the Napoleonic Wars. but originally there were five kind of run sheds. And the sheds had three floors for each one, and it'd be a bunch of kind of poles down the middle and sailors who ended up there, well, in the case of the French, there were some soldiers, but but mostly sailors. They'd have to sling their hammocks at night between these hooks, but they'd basically be sleeping in these big open plan sheds. So that's the environment the Americans uh, encountered when they got there in 1813. And for that first year, so the first ones were arriving in April 13. All the way through until May of 1814, it's overwhelmingly a French prison. So there are, to begin with, just a couple of hundred Americans. That number finally goes up to about a thousand by the end of 1813, but still they're vastly outnumbered by these French guys. So the story, first of all, is black and white Americans having to deal with the French. And I can tell you now, some of these French people were crazy. I mean, they'd been like in prison for 13 years, some of them. I mean, they were really, of them at the end of their tether, doing pretty desperate things. So you get that kind of dynamic that you'd see in any prison novel or movie of just kind of like the communities having to kind of face off against each other. But then the war with France ends uh, in May of 1814. So there's an evacuation that means all the French go. And at that point, it becomes an American prison. So from that point onwards, for the next year and a bit... It's exclusively American. The prison population ramps up. Lots of Americans are transferred from other places. So think for a second about a prison in which there are no cells. You get to come out into the yard during the day. It's a big shared space. But then in the evening, you have to go back into these big prison sheds, and then the key gets turned and you get locked in. So that was the experience for the American prisoners. But in October of 1813, a small group of white prisoners petition the British government of the prison and say, we need to live apart for black people. You can't have these black people in the same space as us. We know they say they're American, but basically we don't want them near us because they steal from us. So at that moment, the British grant the request and initially they give uh, black prisoners a separate floor and eventually they get an entire shed to themselves. And that becomes known as Block floor or prison floor. And that becomes the center of African-American life in the prison. But, but this is the bunker's crazy part. That prison, that, that that block is open during the day. Anyone can go in there. So the really extraordinary thing about looking really carefully at the sources is that you can see that white prisoners came to the prison all the time. White prisoners were there in the day all the time. And for me, the most incredible part of the whole story is there are three or four manuscript diaries by ordinary white sailors. So diaries that they were filling out at the time in real time. And then, of course, there are all of these accounts written later by white sailors. The later accounts all suggest that the black prison was a place no one would go and take seriously. You'd go to laugh at black people, you'd go to watch a play, but the play would be terribly active because the people there were black or whatever else. The diaries suggested these white people went to the black prison block and had fun. One of them said there's more enjoyment in this Block than in all of the rest of the prison Put together so what i think was going on during the war of 1812 is a kind of infernal uh cross-racial community is developing centered in the black prison and with black people in charge and at the end of the war of 1812 when white people remember this usually for money right because they're writing memoirs or whatever else they erased that world in which they had been customers participants they basically have been co-players where the people in charge had been black. And so the memory of that space where black people were not separate from white people, but effectively running a space in which white and black people were alongside each other, that memory got extinguished. And that, for me, is one of the, the really amazing parts of this whole story, which is very hard to see unless you have really the sources I was able to gather and put them up in the right way to enable you to see that the memory and the reality of what happened in real time they diverged. And again, that shouldn't surprise us because, you know, the possibilities for racial togetherness, for forms of racial community and understanding, we know it gets squeezed in the 1820s and the 1830s. I mean, it, it's always contested, but we know it gets squeezed. And of course, many of these accounts written after afterwards, they're published in the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s, when it becomes crazy to imagine having gone into a black space and enjoyed yourself as a white person, even though you weren't in charge. So that, for me, is one of the parts of the story that's most kind of incredible and worth remembering, worth recovering. And
1: you had mentioned before about um, gender mm-hmm. and, and how that worked in the prison. Can you actually um, ex, ex, escalate, um a little more uh, on that point?
2: Yeah, I mean, this goes back to what we talked about um, when we talked about my last book, Binders Apart*. Um I mean, one of my uh, contentions in that book is that one of the things that makes even quote-unquote well-intentioned white people kind of lose their minds over the prospects of racial integration and racial coexistence after slavery is the threat of amalgamation. Uh, And I mean, I argue quite strongly in that book where there are a whole bunch of white people who can't um, verbalize or theorize reasons why amalgamation would be a bad thing, but it's the space where they just kind of open their hearts to prejudice. And sometimes they openly acknowledge it, right? They're like, I know I'm being prejudiced, I can't have a black son in all my children can't have a black teacher. So it becomes this kind of like, like space in which prejudice, even amongst quote unquote, enlightened white people is allowed to run riot. And I think it's really fascinating to think about how in Dartmoor that question never really arises because it's an almost exclusively male community. There are relative women that get in. Who are married to sailors including relative british women who are married to black sailors which is really interesting but as a space it's an overwhelmingly homosocial one and that doesn't mean that there isn't there in forms of romantic love or attraction or sex or whatever's going on between men but as a basic proposition it's not like the communities in a place like boston or new york or philadelphia well, again, even the, the sort of liberal white people are super anxious about lower class whites and African-Americans intermingling and having sex or whatever. It's not like that because in effect, what you've got here is a sort of one-shot deal of a community that of self-reproducing. It can only exist within the boundaries of the prison, and it doesn't have that color line that can be crossed sexually, right? Maybe even romantically it could be crossed, but only between two men. And I think that makes a huge, huge, huge difference because I think that the question of amalgamation is so often the place where like, white good intentions, if I could put in those terms with regard to race, it's where they go to die. Like, it's what fries white people's brains during this period and since more than anything else. And in Dartmoor, what? your community is crucially unrepresentative in a sense it doesn't have women in it. And so thinking
1: just about... How, you know, we talked about gender. And we talked about you know the war and and, and the daily experiences. whose story from all of the research that you've compiled? Which you know, mm-hmm. it's it's take. You know, I I remember watching a lecture that you gave one day um, on YouTube mm-hmm. about, about the book, which was actually my introduction to knowing. Um, about this particular project, so over the course of, of this process, like whose story is one that you just go back to, and you just I'm like, wow, this is this is wild.
2: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the book is structured around this guy, King Dick, and I mean, I could tell you a tiny bit more about him just because he's so interesting. So he's a guy from Maryland. Uh, he's called Richard Crayfurst. That's his full name. I think, and again, I mean, this is one of the big revelations for me in doing a project. I'm pretty sure that he was—he would have been six or seven years old, but he will have been in Vienna, Maryland, when Paul Cuffey sailed Paul Coffey's ship up into that space to try and sell his cargo record, which of course Cuffy writes about uh, in his memoir. So I don't know for sure that Richard Crafer saw this, but given that his birthplace is Vienna, Maryland... I'm 99% sure he would have been one of those black faces looking from the shore at this entirely black crude ship sailing into his town with a black captain at the head of it. I and mean, that story for me became then so kind of exciting in thinking about the rest of his life. So he went to sea, and from what we can piece together, he will have served on American ships, probably British ships. He's finally captured on a French privateer. But when he is brought to Dartmoor, which happens in the fall of 1814, he very quickly becomes a person of political influence within uh, that prison block. So he is in the black prison block in prison block number four. All of the white people that end up writing about Dartmoor claim that he was a despot. They say he was a dictator. They say he wandered around the prison with a club. He had this kind of like relationship with these white boys who served him, whatever that means. But actually it's fascinating because it's pretty clear to me that one of the main reasons that the white prisoners the previous year had separated themselves from black people. So one of the main reasons they petitioned the British to be placed somewhere different from African-Americans or from the black sailors is because they didn't want to share political power with them. And I mean, this is something really fascinating about prisons, right? Generally speaking in a prison of war, the prisoners from a particular country will elect their representatives. And this is one experience. But for all of the camaraderie on board ships, sailors didn't have, because they took orders directly from the captains and the officers, but in Dormor, the captains and officers were somewhere else. They were usually in a parole town somewhere where they were getting a cushier deal. The ordinary sailors, black and white, were left behind, and those ordinary sailors on the white side found it impossible to imagine sharing political power with, being represented by black sailors. So for me, one of the things in the book that I found so interesting was to kind of unpick this myth of King Dick as this kind of unique despot in the prison, to talk about the ways in which white writers almost had to install some kind of autocracy or some kind of dictatorship, because in a way that then justified post facto their decision to segregate the prison in the first place. And I can tell you about Dick and about Prison Four. We know it was the place where you could learn how to box, you could learn how to dance, you could learn math, you could learn languages. There was a mending library. There was all kinds of crazy stuff going on there. And we know all of these activities were controlled and directed by African-Americans. And King Dick, he may not have been a despot, but he was certainly a person of authority and of power within that space. So I say in the book, this is one of the largest self-governing black spaces outside of Haiti and Africa during this period. But amazingly, unlike much of Africa and certainly Haiti, this is a space in which white people come not just to group, but to buy stuff, to learn things, to be entertained, to find enlightenment and religion. In the case of the chapel that was uh, run by one of the black preachers in, uh, in the, the top part of the prison block. So for me, it's a fascinating, like, like King Dick became a kind of way in to how one could try and look past some of these very easy and obvious racist myths to try and think creatively about what may actually have happened in the space of the black prison at Dartmoor. And it was a very unusual world, maybe even an impossible world to sustain outside the prison. But the fact that it happened at all, and in the fact, it's banished from our histories in effect, for me, was something that made this book really worth writing.
1: And so you know, Biz, we we don't want to give away the the cool story about how things, you know, referring to the turning points, because we know we our, our listeners are going to go buy the books. So, um, <laughs> I, I have a, I have a question that goes you know across the the pond back to the states. So for those prisoners able to return home, mm-hmm. what were their experiences like when they when they returned for 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 the black prisoners?
2: Well, so this raises a really interesting question about how many people ran back, right? So uh, to back up a tiny bit, one of the other things about this whole project that fascinates me so much is that we've been talking all along about these guys as American prisoners, right? And that makes perfect sense. The War of 1812, in a sense, they're coded as US. Let's say for a second they were born in Jamaica or Barbados, and they were serving on an American privateer, American commercial vessel out of Boston or out of Baltimore. Were they American? Like, where were they, really, if they were an American, if they'd fled from Jamaica, what do we call them? Do we call them black? Do we call them African? Do we call them Jamaican, despite the fact they would not want the identification because they wouldn't want to end up being dragged back to Jamaica and re-enslaved? So this question of people's national identity, I found so, so, so interesting. And it's particular importance for understanding the answer to your question about like how black prisoners could then go back to the United States and kind of do something with this experience. So again, yeah, without kind of spoiling the very, very dramatic and crazy end of the book, uh, where terrible things happen, in a way, if you were a Dartmoor prisoner and you were white, when you went back to the United States and you said you were a Dartmoor prisoner, you got some respect. And by respect, I mean, for example, when Andrew Jackson dies in the eighteen forties, there's like a funeral procession with a massive like barge of Dartmoor prisoners on it. There are prisoners' associations. There are all of these different kinds of forms of respect that get given to the white prisoners. If you were a black prisoner at Dartmoor, it became much, much harder to capitalize on that and kind of bend it towards things you needed to do. So in the final chapters of the book, I tell the story of a bunch of folks who wanted to argue from a civil rights perspective, where they had bred for their country at Dartmoor, and now they wanted to try and get recognition of their rights at home but it's so interesting because there are a bunch of white people out oh so you saying that unless we give you this recognition you're not going to be revealed to us in the united states and you're making you were know, like patriotism conditional on stuff we're going to give you so there are all these kinds of ways that these black veterans get subjected to these kind of royalty tests by white people when they invoke Dartmoor. And of course it's also really hard because uh, the Dartmoor, the, the Black Prisoner Dartmoor was a racially separate space. At least that's the way it was coded and remembered. So again, you know, where does that teach us in terms of the arguments you'd want to bring back to the United States? So another thing, and again, I mean you would relate to this in terms of your own work, the only thing I thought about it in the context of is colonization. So actually this idea of black separate spaces as being both very much driven by white racism. But also occasionally being appropriated by black leaders and thinkers to think about the viability of black self government, regardless of the nation. And here's where I think the story is really interesting, right? Because, I mean, what was this black prison block at Dartmoor? Was it an African American space or was it a black space? If it was a black space, did it belong to a United States civil rights struggle or did it belong to an Atlantic struggle for self determination? by black communities, which saw nationality as more transactional, because of course they should think of it that way. Why would you want to be undying loyal to the United States, which is super racist and exclusionary? So I think this question of what kind of space it wears from a national perspective had a big impact on this question of how it got used by African Americans when they went back to the United States. And and I have to tell you, Adam, I think a whole bunch never went back. I think there are a bunch of people that come out of Darwin and go back into the black Atlantic, which is a space of release and of possibility and of freedom, but also from a historian's perspective, a space where it's much harder to see those individuals, so are almost kind of trapped temporarily in the Register of Dalma, right?
1: Yeah, and, and you, there, there are a couple of examples um, of guys who do go back to the, to the States and mm-hmm. um, of, of one of the gentlemen who end up uh, with his wife go to Maine and- yeah, yeah. Yeah, this guy called Henry Van Meter, very interesting fella. That story, I'm not gonna lie, that shit made me mad. Like when, I guess I'll spoil it, but just like when I realized, as you're narrating the story, this man has, um, if we if you see land as just wealth in that particular connection. This man was 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 relatively wealthy in comparison to other black folks in the sense of like he has a wife he has like four or five kids they survive and you know i think uh, i think you had said all of all the boys become mariners living in this relatively i guess remote part of uh Maine north of Bangor um and having just been to Maine a couple months ago and been to Colby College which is not okay. For doing and so, so I'm thinking, like, wow, this dude is like, you know, their family is doing it, and so the fact that
2: he gets effectually duped, um, how do I, I think he has that? Yes, has, has a colonizationist. I mean, a guy from the East, a guy claiming to represent the American Colonization Society, who persuades him to sell out and go to Liberia and then again, without wishing to give you all the spoilers, gets to Boston and the guys from the colonization society who are in Boston, the agents are like, this thing's really old. There's a good chance that he's not going to survive if he makes the trip. That's about publicity, so let's tell him not to go. And he's like, I just sold my farm. I've got nowhere to go. And then he can't buy his farm back and he ends up basically trying to sue the colonization society. But you know, I mean, he's not a stupid guy at all. And again, for me, one of the things about that story that is so profound and like affecting and depressing is that Maine, which you might imagine to be uh, not the biggest like engine of intolerance in the union, is as racist as anywhere. And I mean, one of the reasons that he can be lured into thinking about going to Liberia is that he knows that his kids face a real struggle to get into the local school. He faces a struggle to do business with the white folks, you know, who are the majority, the overwhelming majority in his neighborhood so in a strange kind of way this guy who's kind of fought and bled through the us and has been at dartmoor i, I should have said that he had an amazing start to his life like he was uh, uh, enslaved to the governor of virginia when the american revolutionary war started I and mean, he has this crazy amazing life he's like at a battle for and timbers in 1794 with anthony wayne's army the guy is like this unbelievable almost like kind of forrest gump style character appearing all of these amazing moments in the history of the early republic but the only reason we remember him is that he lived long enough to have a bunch of people from Harper's Magazine go see him in the Civil War when he was turning a hundred. So in effect, his longevity is the thing that brought his story to us. And I mean, this is the other thing, Adam, that I think about a lot in writing the book. Like, Why do we remember what we remember? Like, What is it that has to happen in the past to give us that little bit of traction that we need to tell stories? And it seems to me that very often one of the tragedies of trying to write African-American history is that those moments of traction, those spaces in the archive, they're relatively limited. So in effect, one of the awesome stuff about some of the writing that's been done in the last 10 or 20 years is it's encouraged us to do more with less, right? It's encouraged us to think about ways that even the tiniest fragments and pretexts can help us open up these worlds, these black worlds in the past. And that's where telling this story for me has been this huge privilege because I don't think like twenty five or thirty years ago I could when I was starting out career, I could ever have written this kind of book. I mean it's only really standing on the shoulders of the folks who've done the work, have thought about how you craft this kind of story, but I could begin to have the confidence to try and tell it. So so I feel super indebted to the kind of giants of the field that have really been taking forward this practice of trying to think about these black worlds of the past.
1: Yeah, and and honestly, thinking about Black worlds of the past and thinking backward to what you had mentioned before about um, contested remembrances, um, there was an exchange that you described in one of your final chapters between William Cooper Nell and Frederick Douglass about, you know, how Black activists, because you you had mentioned how... um, white folks remembered, you know, were remembered and were remembered, you know, through Dartmoor. So can you also describe how black activists and black people, just generally speaking, um, in the post-war, we'll just say, you know, decades, remembered Dartmoor and those who were there?
2: Yeah, I mean, William Kippenel, I'm guessing a lot of your listeners will be familiar with with him, but uh, he's such an important abolitionist, um, one of the kind of immediatists are uh, particularly active for after 1830, kind of alongside William Lloyd Garrison initially. And when William Lloyd Garrison has that kind of big split with Frederick Douglass, William Cooper kind of sides with, with Garrison. So he finds himself more in a Garrisonian cap. And obviously that split between Douglas and Garrison is about a bunch of stuff. It's about like strategy and tactics, but I think it's also partly about Douglass's sense of a kind of authenticity or ownership where I am, right, of black people with regards to the story of the politics of getting slavery done in, getting civil rights brought in, like that sense of the centrality of black voices in the story is very much part of what is M.W.S.'s mind when he feels the need to go his own way. I think William Kipanel is really interesting because one of the things he wants to do is write stories of black patriotism. So famously, he wrote a couple of different editions of a book called Colored Patriots appearing in the 1850s initially assembling a bunch of different black folks from the american revolutionary era and again these will be the people that you know very well adam but Crispus attics is probably the most famous of them right so essentially making it seem as if the shot that kind of fired the american revolution back in the best massacre that that was really all about this black guy this Crispus attics guy a sailor again fascinatingly now there are a bunch of historians that could probably give you a slightly more uh, critical perspective on that. And we've maybe seen Nell's work in elevating Crispus Attucks as being itself a kind of political act. Lenell loved the idea that you could have a kind of black hero who could kickstart the American revolution. What's fascinating when Nell then goes on and looks at the war of 1812 is that he scours through these printed accounts of King Dick and thinks, Hey, I'll turn King Dick into my hero. So there's like a page in our art of kind of Patriots about King Dick. King Dick is someone that William Cooper Nell knew in Boston after the war of 1812, when Nell was a kid and King Dick was in his final years. And I get the impression from a row of sources that King Dick was kind of a bit of a reprobate, you know. So he was still doing the boxing, probably gambling. There may have been like prostitution or those kinds of things going on. This is a kind of seedy, seamy Boston, but a bit like Dartmoor Prison. It was a space where black and white folks from the railroaders intermingled now again Nell is from that generation of black activists who saw respectability who saw uplift who saw their performance the kind of heaviness of having to represent the race that was their jam right so they did not like that kind of king dick 1820s moment at all but the crazy thing is that when william cooper went off and looked for stories about king dick at of course, he could only take them from white accounts. And the white account he borrowed from is by a guy who wasn't even at Dartmoor, who wrote the first really famous account of what happened at Dartmoor, which he pretended was, an, was a memoir by himself, but was actually taken from a sailor and kind of thrown into his way. This is like a doctor in Boston who wrote in 1816, super racist. So what William Cipollet did was he took the first two paragraphs of this description. And it's why I read at the start, that little passage from the book. Uh, and then he just cut out the rest, which is just crazy racist stuff about how King Dick had to be there keeping order in the prison because black folks couldn't, you know, take care of themselves. King Dick wasn't very bright. He was just very powerful. All this super, super racist stuff. William Kipanel just basically snipped the excerpt at a part where we were describing King Dick's power without doing all the racist stuff. And. It just struck me as such a kind of tragedy in a way, but the stories of what really happened at Dartmouth were already hidden from William Kuppenell, barely forty years later. And the disagreement that I have in having with Douglas is, Douglas famously got into trouble uh, in the forties and the early fifties around his advocacy of separate education, particularly in the trades for black folks. And William Kuppenell gave gave Douglas a really hard time about this, right? He's like, well, actually, everything should be integrated. And Douglas basically said "Look, there are some instances in which gathering black folks and black power into an entirely black collective works for us, and that should be respected. And you can see why a person like William Copeland would be, you know, discomforted by that, right? Because there was a vision coming from Garrison of a sort of full integrationism in which those all black spaces could be seen as a form of defeat rather than a form of success, but I very much thought about the the prison block at Dartmoor as a really good example of that kind of black collectivity. It's something that William Cooper Nell could never really accept or never really embrace, but it's something that Frederick Douglass could see the power of. So that's kind of where I try and take the book in the end, as we think back to what this space was, Was was Dartmoor a place of like huge achievement for the civil rights struggle in the US? Maybe. When they start, nowhere, a space of black power and control and autonomy, definitely. So the, 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 the difference between those two things is kind of interesting, right? But I can definitely say that they counted for something as a self-governing black community and that kind of crazy moment in Atlantic history of you know race of war and a revolution.
1: See, and and that's that's a, a that to me is just the fascinating and contentious story. Um, that you describe in the book, um that to me I didn't as someone who you know lived in Boston, worked um at some of the public history sites and um often talked about William coopernell and and douglas and and the list goes on um that was the part that I actually was like, oh wow, this I gotta add this to you know I gotta add this to the list and so um the final question for for you for today, you know you know we've been speaking for you know well over an hour about you know this this great book that the they had cage can you talk to us um in, in the final question here what ultimately do you want your readers to gain from reading your book
2: and uh, um... Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of I would say as an author. I mean, I this is just an incredibly cool and exciting story. Yeah. Um, and having never really written like a book about an event before, what? and this is very much event driven. I mean, these guys get in in 1813, something terrible happens in 1815. You just see the cover of the book, you'll get an idea of what that is. And then many of them get out, but not all of them get out. So, there is a kind of like drama, a kind of excitement, a craziness about the story. So, I just love the story to be better known. But we've been talking about the stuff that really it kind of floats my boat, the stuff that makes me most excited as a historian. And it's about the relationship between race and nationality, and maybe the sea, too, right? right. So, in a way, in a strange kind of sense, I, I'm very down with this idea of the sea. As a space of possibility. But during a war, those possibilities inevitably close up, right? So you're either French or you're British or you're American. Doesn't matter if you're from Cartagena. Doesn't matter if you're from China. Doesn't matter if you're from South Asia. If you're on an American ship, you're American. And so I think a lot in the book about that relationship between the seas' possibilities in times of peace and the, the narrowing, the evacuation of those possibilities in a time of war. But well, I'm especially interested in this question of war. Black stories, particularly stories of black sailors, how they connect to our cruel narratives about integration and civil rights in the United States. Is every story of black autonomy, is every story of black community, which involves African Americans, inevitably part of a story of integration? Where are some of those stories of black power in which that power and authority has been derived by an unchosen by appropriated and defended separateness. And I do really think about that a lot. I mean, you know, it's one reason that in discussing Liberia or forms of black colonization, I'm really, really keen not to dismiss the ways in which so many important black thinkers in the 19th century came to imagine possibilities in separation. So I think, again, for all of us who work on this story, integration is clearly the kind of center of gravity, right? It's the thing that sucks. It's the narrative we all suck towards. But I am really fascinated by the idea that this black space at Dartmoor was not entirely and solely a black space. White people found their way there a lot, but it was a space in which black people were in charge. And again, I'm fascinated by what that means. And I would invite people who write read the book, if you get hold of a copy, to, to experience this for yourself and try and decide. I am not sure that we see it as a kind of prehistory of integration story. Maybe it's a bigger story than that. Maybe it's a story about black self-determination on a much bigger stage than the United States.
1: And y'all, we have had the amazing opportunity to chat with my friend, Nick Guyette, uh, author of The Hated Cage, and he's a professor of history at the University of Cambridge. And y'all, if you've enjoyed this conversation with my friend and I, please subscribe to the New Books in African American Studies podcast on the New Books Network and uh, rate us and review us, uh, because ultimately, We need to know how we doing because I think we all need, uh, you know, this this uh, level of review, you know. So so please, you know, show love whenever you can and please purchase this book. Um, And also, um, can they find your book on
2: Audible? Do you have a. um... So so, so, some some uh, white English dude with an amazing voice has sat in a studio for like 13 hours reading the whole thing. Right now, I don't know if you can get it in the U.S., but you should definitely go up and look for it because my wife is listening to it. I'm too embarrassed to do it, and she said he makes you sound quite coherent at times. So that's quite a nice review. Hey, hey, I was gonna say if you, if your wife says that, then, then that's that's a review
1: enough, my friend. So, so man, it's been a blessing and an honor again to to chat with you, man, and I'm glad that we can get this done. And and y'all, once again, this is I think episode like 106 or something, some 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 high number, right? Um, And so, you know, I'm appreciative of of the work that you're doing and um, looking forward to the next time we get to see each other in person. And I'm looking forward to uh, reading and interviewing you about whatever is next on the horizon for your career. So, you know, until that next time, man, congratulations on this text and looking forward to that next time.
2: Thank you so much, Adam. And thank you for what you do for those that write history. I really appreciate it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And
1: so uh, until next time, y'all, this is Adam McNeil for the New Books uh, Network's African-American Studies uh, podcast. Um, So next time, y'all, over and out.